Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption to forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches and glory of this mystery, which is... Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we gather to worship as we gather to hear your word read and preached, Father, we're, we're aware that we're not the only ones in this city who love you and are engaged in worshiping you this morning. And so, Father, we, we do want to lift up our brothers and sisters at Harvest Community Church 
Father Pastor Matt. We ask that the unadulterated gospel would be preached from their pulpit this morning. We ask that the word preached there would be clear and that it would come with power. The hearts of the hearers would be transformed by your words. Father, we ask that you would bring spiritual renewal to that church. Father, we pray the same for Living Water Church. Father, we come to you asking for you to show us marvelous things in your word this morning. And Father, we ask that our hearts would receive those things like good soil and that they would spring to life and bear much fruit in our lives and in our marriages, our families, our workplaces, and our neighborhoods. And Father, I pray that uh, that you would grant me the ability to speak with clarity and boldness. Father, I pray that you would keep me from error. Father, so that your word preached would be for your glory alone. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. As most of you know, Living Water Church is led by a team of eight deacons and five elders, and there are more in the pipeline. And we meet on a regular basis to discuss issues and make decisions about the ministry here. One of the rhythms that we have in place at each of these meetings is what we call evidences of grace. We ask this question, what has the Lord been doing in the lives of his people? And it's a joy to hear about the grace of God at work in the lives of his people as he heals from sickness, frees from addiction, provides work, mends a broken marriage, or uses one member to provide for the needs of another. We're always grateful to God when we see evidence that the gospel is taking root and bearing fruit. These evidences of grace are then followed by a time of prayer where we thank God for what he's doing. I don't know where that practice began. It started before my time. But if I'm not mistaken, it looks like we're just imitating the Apostle Paul. Listen again to this morning's passage. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Gratitude to God for his grace at work in the lives of his people. As I reflected on this passage this past week, I kept thinking about our missionaries, Jesse and Tiffany Shanks, and their work at the Oikos School in Togo. I find the context and our passage so similar that I I asked Jesse if he'd be willing to come and share an evidence of grace with us this morning. For those of you who don't know Jesse and Tiffany, they're longtime members of Living Water Church. Their family served for more than a decade in Togo, a small nation in West Africa off the Gulf of Guinea. They live stateside now, 
but their work of training church planters goes on. Jesse? Thanks, Tate. Uh, so I'd like to share a story with you this morning about a man named Amadou. Uh, Amadou is a quiet, soft-spoken, older gentleman in Togo uh, who has never been a pastor or <clears throat> in full-time ministry, but uh, he's always had the desire to share Jesus with others. So he came to the Oikos school where he learned uh, very simple methods of making disciples of Jesus. And one of the things that uh, we taught there at Oikos was that you don't need a lot of uh, extra things. You don't need to bring a lot of stuff with you when you go to make a disciple because uh, people there have this mentality that you need to you know, have a projector and speakers and go show the, the Jesus film in a village or do some kind of big evangelism campaign. And we taught them that with the Word of God, led by the Spirit of God, that is enough to go make a disciple of Jesus. And we also taught that Praying for people is a very effective way of opening doors to the gospel. Well, Amadou took both of these things very seriously, and so one day he literally just showed up uh, in a village that he had never been to before, although he had been praying for this place for a long time, and he just started asking if there were people that he could pray for. After about the third person that he met, he ran into a young man who said, "'Oh, you need to come to my house and, and meet my father.'" My father hasn't been able to walk for many years, and it's very, very discouraging to him. So uh, Amadou followed this guy uh, into the courtyard of, of this house, and uh, as they're walking in, he noticed that there were uh, chicken feathers and blood on the ground, which was a clear indication that they had just done a sacrifice that day. And he later learned that uh, this man had spent all of his money on all the different witch doctors that are around this area, uh, doing sacrifice after sacrifice, hoping to be healed. Well, he went in and, and met this man, sat down with him, talked with him for a while. And after they finished talking, he simply asked the man, hey, can I pray for you that Jesus would heal you? And the man said yes. And so uh, without a lot of the, the flair and the fluff that you might see from a, a TV preacher, Amadou just simply prayed that Jesus would heal this man. And after he finished praying, uh, the man immediately got up off his mat, stood up on his own, and has been walking ever since that day. And Amadou asked the man, do you want me to come back and start studying the Bible with you? And, and the man said, yes, of course. I want to know this Jesus that just healed me. So Amadou kept coming back week after week, uh, studying the Bible with him, doing a series of, of discovery Bible studies with him and his family. But uh, because this healing caused quite a stir in the village. Uh, week after week, more and more people kept coming into the small little house. So after not too long, they, they built a small structure across the road from the house out of straw and wood. And, uh, and, and a church was born after many people heard the gospel and put their faith in Christ and began following him. Uh, and, you know, we heard about all of this, uh, and we were so encouraged and excited about it. Uh, but it wasn't until about a year after that that we uh, finally got to go and, and visit this church and meet these people and worship with them. And uh, that's, a, that's a picture of uh, the church that day, and that's the man there on the left uh, in the green shirt. Well, thanks, Jesse. Hey, before you run, two questions. When you, when you got word uh, about Amadou uh, planting this church that you had no part of except for training Amadou, how did you feel? 
I, I mean, we were, we were overjoyed, obviously, um, just thrilled to see the gospel going out into uh, really very remote places. I mean, this, this village is way off the beaten path. Uh, and just seeing the way that, you know, God had sent us to Togo, we were there equipping and training church planters, and then seeing one of these guys take the gospel, take the word of God, uh, and go out and, and reach these people in some place that, you know, we would have never gone to. Uh, it was just absolutely thrilling. Yeah. A very important question. What does the word oikos mean? We don't, we don't use it every day. <laughs> yeah, oikos is the, uh, the New Testament word uh, in Greek that gets translated into family or household. So like in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, where it says that we are members of the household of God, that's the word oikos. Hmm. Well, as I mentioned, the, the ministry there continues. Yeah. You still go there and teach and minister. How can we best pray for you and for the school? Yeah, I mean, just, just keep praying for the, the guys that are there. There's a committee of seven uh, men that we trained, and uh, they are now running the Oikos School, and they're continuing to train people that are going out and doing this, this exact same thing. Um, so continue to pray for them, uh, that as they uh, find people to train, uh, that the Lord would lead them uh, to the right people, and that, uh, that it would just continue uh, reaching further and further into every corner of Togo. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you very much. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Last week, Pastor Josh gave us an introduction to this letter. If the Lord wills, we'll spend the majority of 2022 soaking in this little book. We want to go slow and give time for the Christ-exalting words of this letter to soak deep into our hearts. The overall theme of this book, as Josh told us, is the all-sufficient, all-satisfying supremacy of Jesus. Let me begin by adding a few things to last week's introduction. I'm going to put the context of this morning's passage in the form of a story. And the connections with what Jesse just shared with us should be obvious. Saul of Tarsus persecutor and killer of Christians, encountered the risen Jesus in a blinding light on the road to Damascus. God radically converted this Pharisee. And thus, Saul of Tarsus became Paul the apostle, the one sent by God to bring the good news of Jesus Christ, that's the gospel, to Gentiles and to suffer while doing so. He described the difficulties of his mission in these words, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. His calling is full of paradox. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. 
That mission of spreading the gospel took Paul, a suffering Paul, to the far reaches of Asia Minor. His work included ministering for three years in the city of Ephesus. And it was during those three years that he met a man named Epaphras. Epaphras was from Colossae. He is Paul's Amadou in this story. Colossae was a small city situated in the Lycus Valley in modern-day Turkey. We don't know a lot about this city because very little ex- excavation has been done on the site since it was discovered in the late 19th century. We do know that it was largely agricultural, as it is today. And we know that they were known for a type of wool they produced there. It had a shimmery raven black color to it that was caused by the minerals in the water nearby. We also know that this area was prone to earthquakes, one of which probably destroyed the city in A.D. 60, around the time that Paul wrote this letter. Epaphras became a believer under Paul's ministry, and then he brought the gospel home with him to his fellow Colossians. This man also evangelized neighboring cities, planting churches in Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. Paul called Epaphras his beloved fellow slave and a faithful minister of Christ. At the time of this letter, Paul was in prison, probably in Rome, and his beloved Epaphras brought news to him. It was good news. It was evidences of grace about the new believers in Colossae. What a blessing to the imprisoned apostle to hear that one of his converts planted churches in multiple cities and that the grace of God was so clearly evident among the new believers. That said, Paul had never been to the church in Colossae. He'd never met these believers. And we know that from the first verse of the next chapter. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, that's the neighboring city, and for all who have not seen me face to face. This letter was what Paul wanted these new believers who he'd never met to know about the all-sufficient, all-satisfying supremacy of Jesus, and specifically how that knowledge was related to the spiritual dangers they faced. And we'll talk about those dangers later in this study. For now, though, let's go to our text. This is a one-point sermon with three sub-points, so it should be easy to remember. The main point is this. Paul is grateful to God for his grace or the work of the gospel among the Colossians. He specifically mentions the grace of faith, the grace of love, and the grace of hope. That triad of virtues, faith, hope, and love, should be very familiar to us. Even though Paul puts the words in a different order than he did in his famous chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, where he wrote, So now faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This triad is Paul's shorthand for the Christian life. He used the same combination in his letter to the Thessalonians. Like our passage here, he followed his greeting with an expression of gratitude to God. Listen to how similar it is. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and Father, and here's the triad of grace, your work of faith and labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 1. Later in the same letter, Paul lists the same graces and he uses it as an analogy for an armor. This is 1 Thessalonians 5.8. But since we belong to the day, he's contrasting this with the sinfulness of darkness and night, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Colossians Chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 are a prayer. The prayer begins with thanksgiving, and then Paul lists the specific requests he makes of God on behalf of the Colossians. So why did Paul include prayers like this in his letters? Well, I think there were two reasons. First, he wanted to encourage his readers. He made that clear in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. It's always encouraging to know that a friend is bringing our needs before the Father. Just this morning, I had uh, two of my brothers. One sent me a text, and one spoke with me in person and said, Tate, I've been praying for you this morning. And uh, that is encouraging. And so it certainly was an encouragement to his readers that that he would specify what prayers he was offering on their behalf. But Paul also used his prayers to instruct He wasn't shy about calling his fellow believers to imitate him and to imitate his faith. And so by including these prayers, he was not only encouraging his readers, he was also teaching them how to pray for one another, and he was teaching them about Christ, about who Jesus was, about how to understand the gospel, and how to live out the gospel in their lives. His prayers are jam-packed with theological goodness which is why we're going to spend about six weeks working through this one prayer. Let's start at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. The we here is referring specifically to Paul and Timothy, though it's clear from chapter 4 that Epaphras was passionately engaged in prayer for them as well. Epaphras, who's one of you, the verse says, and that's how we know that Epaphras was a Colossian. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. We always thank God, Paul says. It's not critical to press Paul's use of the word always here. The point isn't that They never slept and spent every minute of every day on their knees in prayer. The point is that from the day Epaphras gave them this good news about the new believers in Colossae, they prayed often for them. And every time they prayed, they lifted up their hearts in gratitude to God for the grace they saw in the lives of these new believers. Note that Paul and Timothy thanked God. They didn't congratulate the Colossians for their faith or for their love for the saints. 
Paul directed his thanksgiving to God. And he did that because he understood grace. Grace is the overflow or the communicating of God's goodness, specifically his love, to the ill-deserving. So by definition, grace cannot be earned, nor is it deserved. If it's earned, it's not grace, because grace is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's a gift. And therefore, God gets the glory and we don't get the congratulations. Paul now says the unthinkable for a Jew. Don't let this escape you. What he claims here about Jesus cannot be explained apart from his experience on the Damascus Road. This Pharisee, it met the risen Jesus, and he calls him here the Son of God. And then he exalts him as Lord. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Lord here is an unmistakable reference to Jesus as divine. Listen to biblical scholar and commentator Greg Beale on Paul's use of the word Lord in this verse. Calling Jesus Lord is not merely an honorific title that sometimes applies to kings or masters, but it is a reference to Lord. That is kurios in the Greek Old Testament, which was the typical translation of Yahweh, and thus a clear reference to Jesus' deity. You see, for a Jew to suggest that God was the father of Jesus and to call Jesus Lord would be blasphemous. The Damascus Road is the only good explanation for this radical reversal of this Pharisee. And using the word Lord here is just the tip of the iceberg. Over the coming weeks, we're going to learn much more about Paul's view of the deity of Jesus. Verse 4, since we heard, that is, since we heard from Epaphras of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Paul and Timothy's prayers for the Colossians began, as we saw in verse 9, on the day they heard two things about the Colossians. This is what sparked their thanksgiving to God, their faith and their love. Faith. And we use so many words to try to describe what faith is because we've become callous to the word believe. We say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that could mean so many different things. And our hearts and our heads have gotten so hardened that we hardly know what the word believe or faith means. So we say things like this. Faith is believing in, trusting in, embracing, resting in, treasuring Christ. And we treasure Him as all-sufficient, all-satisfying, and as the supreme Lord that He is. That is what it means to have faith. And the faith that Paul's talking about among the Colossians was a faith that overflowed in love. 
It was a gift. It is something granted by God, not earned. Remember, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And listen to Paul in Philippians 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's faith, but also suffer for his sake. There's that reference and connection to suffering again. Faith is granted. It is a gift, which means that faith comes to us by grace alone. And that's one of the doctrines we glory in at this church, grace alone. When Epaphras told Paul that faith had been granted to this people he'd never met, Paul rejoiced, and his rejoicing gave way to thanksgiving to God. But there's more to what Epaphras reported. We're still in verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Paul couples the report of their faith with Epaphras' report of their love. Their love was evidence of the genuineness of their faith. Two reasons. First, because true, true faith overflows in love. That's how Paul knew the faith of the Colossians was authentic. They not only believed, but their belief, their faith was of the kind that overflowed in acts of love. Theirs was a true faith, a saving faith, not a dead one. That's the point made by Jesus' brother, the apostle James. What good is it, he wrote, if someone says that he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith, can that kind of faith save him? And he gives this marvelous little anecdote. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needful for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, that is, if it does not overflow in love, is dead. The second reason this report of love was evidence of the genuineness of their faith was because love is a distinguishing mark of a disciple of Jesus. Three reasons. First, Jesus commanded that his disciples love. A new commandment I give to you, he said that you love one another just as I have loved you. As I have loved you, that's the gospel. So also you are to love one another. Second, Jesus not only commanded it, but then he said that love was how his disciples would be known. That same passage I just quoted goes on. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13. And third, the love we're talking about here, love that flows from true faith, is produced by or in the Holy Spirit. Paul says as much in verse 7 of the same chapter. Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. That's verses 7 and 8. The clearest evidence for this, though, is, of course, Galatians chapter 5, where Paul is explicit that the fruit of the Spirit is love, as well as joy and peace 
and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So Paul here expressed his thanks to God for the genuineness of the faith of the Colossians, and he knew their faith was real, one, because it resulted in love, and two, because love is a distinguishing mark of the believer. And I'll add this. The love of the Colossians was especially directed to their fellow believers. This is the order of priority Paul gave to the church in Galatia. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. That's what Christian love looks like. It does good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hope, as Paul is using it here, is not so much the affection of hope that anticipates or expects something that it desires. Hope here represents the things themselves that are hoped for. And I hope this isn't confusing, but in English we call this metonymy. Metonymy is substituting the name or attribute or a feature of a thing for the thing itself. For example, we call a monarchy the crown. When the sound booth counts the number of people in attendance, they call it a head count, not a people count or a person count. We substitute head for person. Hope here represents all of those glorious things we hope for. It is the glorious things promised to us and put forth in the gospel. That's why Paul calls it the hope of the gospel in verse 23. Here's a sampling of the hope put forth for you in the gospel. For the sake of time, I'll only give the references but this is glorious. We have the hope of our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies, Romans 8. We have the hope of righteousness, Galatians 5. We have the hope of resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. We have the hope of salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5. The hope of eternal life, Titus 1. The hope that enters the holy of holies, Hebrews 6. The hope of the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, Ephesians 1. And the hope of future glory right here in Colossians chapter 1. And if we were to take all of these hopes and lump them together, heaven and happiness, and all the shadows of it we enjoy here on this earth, if we had to put them together and put a single word to it, we'd have to say that the hope held out to us in the gospel is Christ himself. A little more metonymy for us. Christ is our salvation. He is our righteousness. He is the resurrection. He is our inheritance. He is our eternal life. Jesus said to Martha, as she was grieving the loss of her brother Lazarus, Jesus comforted her with these words, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes, that's faith. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
The risen Christ is our hope. This is how Paul opened his first letter to Timothy. He wrote, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior and our Savior, our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope, 1 Timothy 1. Before we dig deeper into verse 5, let me say a quick word about this relationship between faith and love and hope. As we've already shown, true faith loves. It overflows in love and especially in love for the saints. But let me give you two more connections. First, faith, this Believing, trusting, embracing, resting in, and treasuring Christ works through love. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love, Galatians 5. And second, faith, and this is the verse you were all wondering if I was going to mention, faith is the assurance of what hope anticipates. This believing, trusting, embracing is not based on speculation. It is a settled conviction based upon the character of the one who made the promises. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11. So faith, true faith, overflows in love. True faith works through love. And thirdly, the assurance, it is the assurance of what hope anticipates and so abides faith, hope, and love. Let me bring this to a close now by finishing the first part of verse 5. Paul thanked God for the faith and the love of the believers in Colossae. And he said that their faith and the resulting love was because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. And there's a lot that could be said here. But let me just ask one question. It's the so what question. So what if the Colossians had this hope laid up for them in heaven? What are the implications? If you and I have this hope laid up for us in heaven, what does it mean for our everyday lives, this side of the happiness of heaven? I'll try to answer that with four observations, and all but the first observation comes with a quote from an old dead guy. (laughs) First, if your hope, like that of the Colossians, is laid up for you in heaven, then brothers and sisters, your hope is secure. The stock market can crash, your business can go bankrupt. Your husband might never change. Your chronic pain might never let up this side of eternity. But oh, how this hope laid up, secured for you in heaven, makes those hardships appear light and temporary and designed by a loving father for your eternal happiness in the presence of his son, Jesus, the object of your hope. This is exactly how Paul viewed his sufferings in his mission to the Gentiles. So we do not lose heart, he wrote. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light 
momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's our hope. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are eternal. What we hope in, brothers and sisters, will last forever. If your hope is in Christ, nothing can separate you from him. Either death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a hope to put your promise in, your hope in. There's a promise to put your hope in. If your hope is laid up for you in heaven, brothers and sisters, it is secure. Two, if your hope is laid up in heaven, then we'd be a fool to seek it here in the things of earth. Listen to the words of the Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter. Is our hope laid up in heaven? How great then is our sin and folly to seek and expect it here. Where shall we find the Christian that deserves not this reproof? Surely we may all cry guilty. We know not how to enjoy conveniences, houses, goods, lands, revenues, but we seek rest. We put our hope in these enjoyments. We seldom, I fear, have such sweet and heart-contenting thoughts of God and glory as we have of our earthly delights. How much rest do we seek in buildings, walks, apparel, ease, recreation, sleep, pleasing meats and drinks, merry company, health and strength and long life? Nay, We can scarce enjoy the necessary means which God hath appointed for our spiritual good, but we are seeking our rest in them. He gave you those things to help you to him, and you take up with them in his place. He gave them to you that they might be comfortable refreshments in your journey. And wouldst thou now dwell in thy inn and go no further? What he said there was that you've been promised a mansion overlooking Flathead Lake in Montana. And the one who gave it to you also booked you a room at the Holiday Inn in Boise for the journey there. How silly would it be if you took a liking to your hotel room and decided to stay and make it your home? He gave you the Holiday Inn for your journey It was meant by the giver to help you to him, to a far greater treasure. Yes, what fools we are if we put our hope in the fleeting treasures and trinkets of this world. Brothers and sisters, if your hope is laid up for you in heaven, it is secure and it is foolish for you to seek it here below. Number three, if your hope is laid up in heaven... It frees you to love lavishly here on earth. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. I can't wait to get to those verses later this year. Paul puts it like this. Whatever you do, 
Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What's the implication of having the hope of your inheritance laid up for you in heaven? Well, it frees you to work with all your heart because you're not laboring to please people or to earn a buck. You're serving Christ, your Lord, and he, the reward in which you hope, the very goal of your earthly journey dwarfs anything this world can offer you. Here's Richard Baxter again. The happiness of heaven is our hope because it is the thing hoped for. We're looking for the blessed hope. That's from Titus chapter 2. What is laid out upon believers in this world is much, but what's laid up for them in heaven is much more. And we have reason to give thanks to God for the hope of heaven, which good Christians have. Their faith in Christ and their love to the saints had an eye to the hope laid up for them in heaven. And the more we fix our hopes on the recompense of the reward in the other world, the more free and liberal shall we be of our earthly treasure upon all occasions of doing good. Yes, the greater your care for treasure in heaven, the less you'll cling to your treasures on earth. And number four, if your hope is laid up for you in heaven, then you have no reason to fear death. We've seen firsthand over the past two years the extremes to which humans will go to avoid sickness and death. This virus has opened a window into our hearts. And for many, it has exposed the sad reality that their hope is not where it should be. Richard Baxter again. Oh, if we did but verily believe the promise of this glory, that it is the word of God, and that God truly means as he speaks, and that he's fully resolved to make it good. If we did verily believe that there is indeed such blessedness prepared for believers as the scriptures promise, Surely we would be as impatient of living as we are now fearful of dying and should think every day a year till our last day should come. In a footnote to that, Baxter quoted the early church father Cyprian, who was the third century bishop in Carthage. And he says, this is who should fear death. Let him fear to die who being not born of, again of water and the Spirit, is condemned to the flames of hell. Let him fear to die who is not judged to be Christ's in his cross and passion. Let him fear to die who must from this death pass to the second death. Let him fear to die whom eternal fire must torment with everlasting pains when he departeth hence. Let him fear to die who by his longer delay doth gain only the deferring of his groans and torments. That's who should fear death, but not the believer. For, for the believer, death is a promotion. There is no reason for us to fear. So brothers and sisters, 
If your hope is laid up for you in heaven, rest assured that your hope is secure. It's foolish for you to seek it anywhere else. It will free you up to love lavishly here on earth, and it will free you from the fear of death. What a glorious hope we have. Put your hope in Christ alone. Let me close by taking Paul's prayer to the Colossians, for the Colossians, and pray it for you. Let me pray the same prayer for Living Water Church this morning. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the faith of your people at Living Water Church. Father, I pray that you would increase their faith. May it grow. And Father, I thank you for the love that flows from that genuine faith among believers here. Father, I pray that you would take that love and you would kindle it into a flame. And Father, I thank you for the hope that is laid up for my brothers and sisters in heaven. I thank you that it is secure. I thank you for all that it frees us to do. And Father, I ask that you would fill all of us at Living Water Church with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Father, I ask that we might walk worthy in a manner that is worthy of you. We want to be fully pleasing to you. Father, I ask that we might bear fruit in every good work. I ask that we might increase in the knowledge of you. And Father, I ask that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might so that we can endure and that we can have patience and that we can have great joy. Father, do that work in my heart and do it in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here at Living Water Church. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.